Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of January 17th, 2017. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host today and I'm joined as always by my two co-podcasters, but this time... Finally, we have both in studio. So I'm talking, of course, about 538 sports writers, Chris Herring and Kyle Wagner. Hey, guys, it's great to be in the same room together. It's good to be here in person for the first time. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't yeah. Like, well, I don't like it one bit. Well, Kyle, you're spreading no, put him more back on the TV right to, now. More people to spread your germs to. <laughs> right? Spread germs to me. Yeah, right. Um, uh, well, on today's show, uh, we're going to take all the love in this room and uh, use it to talk about all the hatred boiling in the NBA uh, with with all the bad blood over the past couple weeks. We're also going to try to solve one of the league's most puzzling teams with Washington Post Wizards beat writer Candace Buckner. And finally, we'll bring you a small sample on Lou Williams late blooming as a high scorer in the NBA. But first, let's hit the headlines and talk about all that crazy stuff between players that seem to boil over in the last couple weeks. So last week, the league saw a couple altercations. You had James Johnson against Serge Ibaka. You had DeMar DeRozan against Goran Dragic, plus Isaiah Thomas committing a flagrant foul on Andrew Wiggins. And that was just the beginning because of the start of this week on Monday and Tuesday. You had six players who were ejected and 13 other players get technical fouls. And that's on top of the complaints about the officials from the likes of Russell Westbrook, Carmelo Anthony, who said he was done with the refs, Draymond Green, who said the league should go out and get a whole new crop of referees. There's a lot of attention on officiating and and just uh, scraps between players this season, and it seems like it's kind of reaching a fever pitch right now. So I wanted to talk to you guys. First of all, is it just our perception that it does seem to be so much craziness happening right now? I mean, foul numbers, you were looking into this, right, Chris, that they're actually at, a, at an all-time low right now, right? Pretty much. I mean, it, it's been this way for a while now, and I think there are probably reasons for that. But if you look at the... The 10 NBA seasons throughout history that have seen the lowest personal foul rates, nine of those 10 years have happened within the last 10 years. And so, if anything, it, it signals that the refs are actually blowing their whistles less often than they have in the past. Um, I think you could probably attribute a lot of that to the fact that the game is spaced differently. Everybody can shoot, so you've got guys that are spread out further that aren't right on top of each other. But at the same time, pace is up, and so maybe these plays are happening quicker in more space, and it's kind of putting refs in a tougher spot. My hunch is really, if I had to make one based on the numbers, which is tough to do, that maybe because there are less fouls being called, that the frustration is boiling over for the players more. They're missing stuff here and there, and as a result of it, players are kind of taking the matters into their own hands and getting frustrated either with the refs or with the opposing players and literally throwing punches at them. Yeah, it, it seems like, ironically, the refs might not be exerting enough control over the game, uh, which is funny to hear because the players always talk about wanting to, you know, them to let them play and everything like that. I also think there's it might be just there's more emphasis on drawing fouls at this point, and so it's thanks more li- James Harden. I mean, thanks Corey Maggette. Th- thanks like everyone who <laughs> like showed us. Back. Like yeah, like uh, like really thanks John Hollinger. Th- thank you John Hollinger for yelling at Derrick Rose to get fouled more in Chicago and kind of bringing us into the era where everyone is trying to shoot eight or ten foul shots a game. And when that's happening, like there's a much more there's much more emphasis on the rule book and the way things are officiated. And so a minor change in emphasis, uh, which is what the league does when it doesn't want to, like, actually change its bylaws or, like, the, the rules of the game, 
uh, a minor change in emphasis will have an effect on referees and then it will have an effect on the players as the referees are trying to you know, figure out how to officiate like the kind of the new way that the the league wants them to. And do you think there's also something to just the fact that referees seem to be more scrutinized now than ever we can kind of call up every call that they make and sort of dive into? And the players themselves are also highly aware of, of who made certain calls and sort of seem to be keeping score on their own, maybe in a way that they haven't been able to do in the past. There was that there was a stat I can't remember. I'm I'm actually not as big on the individual referees and their reputations, but when you got guys like Bob Volgaris and other people that are paying such close attention to this for betting reasons. Yeah, the gamblers out um, there. I mean, they keep really close tabs on this sort of thing, and as a result of that, it kind of gets into the blogosphere and on Twitter in terms of, you know, one team, I think at one point where the Warriors winless uh, when a certain ref was calling their games. I can't even remember the name of who it was, but people pay such close attention to this now, and you have to imagine that um, the same way that when we have a teacher that we don't like when we're younger because we felt like they were hard on us without reason, uh, these referees, the players definitely remember who they are, who calls them for a tech, um, who calls them for fouls that they feel like are unfair, who allows them to have a conversation about what sort of call was made and who, you know, in some cases basically kind of tunes them out and is not willing to hear them out. So I'm sure for them it's much more personal than it is for us, but even for fans – uh, and entire fan bases, it kind of, you get this impression that they are more aware of which referees kind of give their team a hard time or just maybe don't call the game the way that the fans see it. I mean, this has always been the case though. It's like, we're talking about it now because of the thing that's in front of us, but Joey Crawford and the Spurs is a thing that we've always <laughs> talked about. Bennett Salvatore yeah. and the Heat. Uh, and, well, really, Bennett Salvatore and the Mavericks. Um, uh, going back to the 2006 finals, um, like, this is, this is a story from 1977 by Dave Anderson, special in the New York Times. Um, but what's happened is the referees have become too slow for the game. I know this. If I were supervisor of the officials this year, six would have been gone. The, uh, <laughs> the officials are one of the reasons these things are happening. Like, the referees have always been the point of contention with the league because it's the thing that like is easiest to complain about. Like and like a lot of times there are blown calls, but but it's not like this is a unique era like the stats that Chris just brought in or just basic NBA history of like they have always been the people that people are yelling at because it's fun to yell at the refs. Right, yeah, and and Adam Silver was even asked about this uh in a press conference uh 2 weeks ago and he said that they've looked back at data from over the years and that there haven't been a greater number of ejections or a greater number of technicals now uh that nothing aberrant is happening in terms of calls on the floor but it's something that people are talking about and so it could be just that it's the recency bias and just the the fact like you said Kyle it's right in front of us and and there are a lot of high profile uh incidents I think on one day, I think it was Monday uh, of this week on, on MLK Day of all days, uh, in which you had a bunch of teams playing also. That was part of it, too. Uh, and so I think maybe we're, we're inclined to sort of jump out at the, the aberrant outlier number and, and not think about the season as a whole. And just to put a number to that, uh, players were fined a total of $2.9 million last year. And this year it's about halfway through the season and they've been fined $1.4 million, And that's before whatever fines come from the spate of ejections and technicals that happen uh, over the last week. So it does seem like we're it's basically on the same pace as usual, that it's not a, a weird season. It just seems that way because of a lot of the media attention and, and things that are right in front of us. Also, you want to say like the aberrant number that's like in front of us. Rashid Wallace got 41 techs in a season. <laughs> he got 41 in 80 games. More than like 
like yes, like there are. Uh, well, like, he he was the Babe Ruth of the technical foul, though. Literally, right. more than anybody in history, and it's not close. It's this is not a new thing where like uh, refs are just like teeing guys up like really quickly, and I mean, but it could be at the same time that the numbers are kind of in line because you know players adjust, but they understand that there's a quicker trigger now. But at the same time, that's something that like fans I think have been asking for for years of just of watching the star players or just like the role players down the bench just complain after every call uh, just gets taxing. I will say this, and I mean I wrote a, a really fun piece about this last year about the notion that. Uh, which players complain the most? And lo and behold, it was Draymond, it was LeBron, Wall, Westbrook, Harden. These are star players. They complain a lot. Uh, and a lot of times in the league has always been this way about certain things, about uh, delay of game and, and not putting the ball back down on the court uh, to start a play, about illegal defense. They let you get away with it once. And then they call a tech the, the next time you do it. And sometimes there have been some seasons where they don't give you that one warning. They just call it right away. The reason they do that is to nip it in the bud so that it doesn't become a recurring problem. And so maybe that's what's happening here. But again, there's not even data to suggest that. The only thing I can possibly think of, Neil and I were talking about this before the show, maybe there are more quick ejections where basically they're calling two texts at once. Like what like, happened with Russell Westbrook. Exactly. Maybe that's happening a little bit more this year and it's catching people off guard, but I haven't even looked at the data to be able to say that definitively. That's the only thing I can think of, though, because everything else statistically is directly in line between fines, technical fouls, ejections. It's all similar to what we've seen in recent history. So it's not, I think more than anything, it's just the names of the people that have been involved and it's the short amount of time that all these things have happened in that I think is catching people off guard and making them think that it's actually a higher number than what it is. The delay of game thing too uh, kind of goes into the way that the league is like legislating these things where uh, a couple seasons ago now they had the thing where you're not even allowed to just pass the ball to the ref or pass the ball to the opponent when uh, after they're made basket, you just have to let it sit there on the court, which is actually like, more of a delay of the game than than if you just hadn't had just thrown it to the ref, but uh, and that kind of goes to what Carmelo was saying after the the Russ ejection, where it used to be a conversation, and now there's a lot of things that are just like the automatic trigger of no, that's a tech, like that's a tech, that's a tech, and so like that could be going into the, just the perception of it also, right? And it does sound like the league is paying attention. Um, in that same press conference, Adam Silver said he wanted to concentrate on improving referee player relationships. So we'll we'll see how that works, uh, but it certainly seems to be kind of a flashpoint this season. Okay, let's leave things there with the referees. And uh, I think this is a first for our podcast, but we just got a breaking news alert as we're in the studio here taping that uh, Spurs forward Kawhi Leonard is out indefinitely now with the same quad injury that uh, he had been sidelined with earlier this season. Guys, what does this mean for the Spurs uh, in general and also just for the Western Conference picture? I mean, it, it might not mean a damn thing with regard to the Spurs as far as the regular season goes. Because they've been chugging along I mean, their, their record technically might be better without him than it is with him, but obviously that is not meaningful in the sense that we saw what happened with the Spurs last year in the playoffs, specifically against the Warriors without Kawhi Leonard. They're not going anywhere if he's not healthy. Maybe they could win a round depending on who they're playing, uh, but they're a team that's already kind of in that 2-3 hole and really, Minnesota is kind of climbing. So, I mean, depending on what happens with them, if they don't play all that well in the second half, this is a team that could potentially drop. And if that happens and Kawhi's not there, if he doesn't come back healthy, um, I mean, it, it could be a, a really early exit in the playoffs without having somebody like Kawhi. 
it also just puts off the adjustment that they're going to have to make with the the offense as it's centered around LaMarcus right now. Right. Br- like bringing Kawhi back in, he's going to be doing more pick and roll. He's just going to have the ball more. And Kawhi's numbers himself, like, were down. Like, his shooting was down, just even on free throws, like, down from what it was the, the rest of his career. And that takes, like, 15, 20, 25 games uh, for a guy who's been out as long as he has to kind of get back into uh, just where he was, let alone, like, any improvement that he's shown every year that he's been in the league. And, like, so people were hoping that even though he had missed all this time at the beginning of the season, he might have added something to his game because he's done that every season. Um, so it's going to be a stretch just to get him back into like the form that you hope he would would have been in last season had he not you know gone out in that series. But like also just totally retooling the team because it is a different look team this season. And uh, there was just a story this week um, by Brian Windhorst on ESPN about the differences between the ways that the Cavs uh, handled the Kyrie Irving trade demand and the way that the Spurs were able to handle the Marcuses. And a big part of that was like, well, LaMarcus wasn't happy about the way he was being used in the offense. And a big part of the difference that he's being used in the offense is there's no Kawhi Leonard on the floor right. this season. So like that is that has been a thing that has been an issue in the past and they're going to have to figure that out again. And so just missing Kawhi for what an indefinite stretch again this season, right. uh, like that just puts that on the back burner again. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that uh, as the season goes on, but just wanted to hop in and get some quick takes on that uh, while we were in the studio all together. So now, before we shift gears to our main segment about the Washington Wizards, let's hear a word from our sponsor. All right, healthy friends, the days of not following through with resolutions are over because the days of Sunbasket are just beginning, which means you're going to keep your resolution this year because Sunbasket makes it easier than ever. And today you can get $35 off your first order when you go to sunbasket.com slash the lab, T-H-E-L-A-B, one word. When you have healthy meals regularly delivered to your door with Sunbasket, it's easy to stay on track. I'm talking about ingredients like organic produce, responsibly raised meats, sustainably sourced fish, organic pasture-raised eggs, and organic non-GMO tofu. Oh, and house-made sauces you can't find anywhere else. Sunbasket lets you mix and match from paleo, lean and clean, gluten-free, vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean, and more. Not to mention tons of variety with 18 recipes to choose from each week. Best of all, each delicious, easy recipe is ready in about 30 minutes. With Sunbasket, you have total flexibility. You can cancel anytime, skip anytime, and choose any meal plan you want. So go to sunbasket.com slash the lab today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash the lab for $35 off. Sunbasket.com slash the lab. Before the season, the Washington Wizards made waves by declaring that they, and not the three-time defending conference champion Cavs, were the best team in the East. But midway through the season, Washington is only in fifth place, just two games clear of the East's final playoff slot. They've also been one of the more confusing teams in the league, with basically the same record against losing teams as they have against winning clubs. To talk about all of this up-and-down season for the Wiz, we're now joined by Candace Buckner of the Washington Post, one of the NBA's top beat reporters. Candace, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, guys. So to start off, I wanted to talk a little bit about what the expectations were for the Wizards going into the year, because there was that Bradley Beal quote about being the top team in the East, but also some genuine reasons to think that this group was on the cusp of some sort of breakthrough, right? Right. Um, and I will say, you know, I have no problems with their um, with their belief and their confidence uh, in themselves. Totally have no problems in that. But I think there's a, a difference between, you know, having confidence and just, um, 
being a, a little bit too uh, self-assured. Um, you know, all they did this year really was stand pat. They re-signed Otto. They uh, extended John Wall and really pushed this uh, narrative that by being exactly who we are, we're only going to get better because these guys are all in their prime. John Wall's the oldest one, really, of that, of that core. He's 27 years old, just turned it in the summer. So they were thinking all these years of three, basically three years of, uh, of um, playoffs and getting to the second round that they would have enough to make that extra push, and it's worth the year to do it. Um, hasn't been the case, though. So that can be for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, they stood pat and because they were expecting a lot of development out of those young players. Beal got a lot better last year, I thought, and uh, like it could be assumed that he was going to get a little better this year, take another step. Otto Porter uh, signed the big deal, and uh, like a lot is expected out of him. Uh, Beal's kind of had a down year, uh, or at least like he hasn't taken the same kind of step. He's shooting, I think, under 36% from three this season. Uh, he's traditionally around or above 40 uh, Otto Porter, you know, just he's been better, but like not by much. So, like, what's going on with the development there? Is there like disappointment around the team, or are they just think that like that's going to pick up in the second half? Yeah, well, um, you know, what we're talking about, you said Bill wasn't um, hasn't made that big leap. Well, he, you know, his shooting. I'll say this: his shooting hasn't hasn't been as efficient, but he's the one that's leading the team uh, in shot attempts this year. First time in his career, he's leading the team in scoring. Um, but yeah, he just recently had the stretch of 10 straight games and he's scoring over 20, 20, um, 20 points. Um, wasn't the most efficient during that stretch. However, um, he was scoring. Thing with Otto, which is interesting, he's actually shooting more than he did last year, but his shooting hasn't really been there, uh, over the last 10 games. And he might have been dealing with this hip injury, um, hip issue, I'll say that. And I think that's uh, kind of the overarching theme of the season. Last year, they were completely healthy, almost um, almost like a dream. You, you, you can't expect a team to be that healthy. This year, um, you know, Marquise Moore started the year uh, missing the first seven games, missing all the training camp, missing all his preseason. Um, John Wall has missed 11 games. And Otto has uh, sat out a couple games with uh, a couple ailments. So, um, they have already uh, missed more man hours in that in that starting unit than they did all in all of last season. So that's one thing. But the other, the truth is, uh, you know, how come they haven't been able to still beat the teams that they're supposed to be able to beat? Um, they're still having some problems closing out games. And I don't think you need John Wall on the floor to beat the Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn Nets play extremely hard, extremely hard. But they took two L's in Brooklyn. That forty-seven point loss in Utah. That's inexcusable there are just some games that you that they're going to look back on the schedule and they're looking back now and saying yeah we dropped about eight or nine games and you, you bring up the, the their record against under 500 teams they're going to look back and say you know we really wanted this 50 plus win um season that was their milestone 50 plus wins eastern conference finals and they might have um ruined that um already in november and december yeah, I wanted to bring in, uh, now that you mentioned that, uh, John Wall's remarks earlier in the year that the Wizards were just playing for stats against losing teams. Is, is that part of what explains the, the up and down nature of this team and this kind of strange split between how they, they almost like played down to their competition so far this year? Yeah, I'm, 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 I was very interested, um, I was very interested when he said that. 
Um, and I tried to go back and like try to you know, look at those, look, look at their stats versus under 500 teams versus um, teams that they do well against the Boston Celtics and Houston Rockets. I didn't see a, a drastic uh, jump in, in how they're in how they play, and, and maybe it's just. And Martian Gortat has actually said that too. He said it in a Polish interview. So obviously, it's something that they've talked about. It's something that they think they're doing. I just haven't seen just a, a market um, decline or or uptick in um, this guy is like going crazy against the Atlanta Hawks and just jacking up like twenty five shots a game, something like that. I haven't seen that, but um, there, there definitely is a different mindset when they face. Um, so right now I'm in Charlotte, and they're going to face the Charlotte Hornets. There's definitely a different mindset, and you can tell with this team. There's uh, a lack of energy. They don't get into their sets uh, fast enough. They don't get stops as um, as often as you would um, if you would need them to, as, as, as they would need themselves to do. Because once they get stops, they can get out and uh, get out on the break, of course. And uh, with John Wall, either as a one man fast break or finding his wings on the other on the other end. It, it, they really do look like a different team when they play against uh, sub-500 teams. And, and that's the problem. They're not, for lack of a better word, they're, not, they're just not good enough to take nights off. What I find so interesting about that, I mean, we're, we're used to seeing guys play differently in a contract year to play more for statistics. Um, you know, I watched Derrick Rose last year basically <laughs> not take three-pointers at all uh, when he knew he was in a contract year. Uh, I think it was Mo Harkless was on the cusp of getting a, a contract bonus if he could shoot 35% or better from the floor. <laughs> he was at 35.1 going into their last four games of the season and then just didn't take a three and then later acknowledged that was why. And so that's one thing, but all these guys just got paid e- either through extension or contract. So that's interesting on the one hand. I guess the thing that I'm wondering and a lot of people would wonder about this team, there's clearly a lot of talent there. There's clearly a lot of young talent. You listen to these TNT guys all the time. For years, they always talked about Beal and Walls being one of the two or three best backcourts in the league, right behind Clay and Steph, or right neck and neck with them before they started going on this run with all these titles. My question is, where at this point does the upside come from now that everybody has been paid? Uh, you know, I watch Kelly Oubre. He looks a little overly aggressive on defense sometimes. There was a play against Utah where Ingles hit the game-winning three where he tried to kind of help defensively and then missed angles on the outside but where 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 else can this upside really come from I, I read comments from Marcin Gortat you know talking about potentially being ready to retire in Orlando and I'm like wait a minute you're on a decent team in Washington and so I just I don't know what to make of this team right now well I think you hit you hit it there they've sent away so many draft picks um for some rentals and even their last draft pick, the the fifty seventh pick, they sent away to New Orleans for Tim Frazier, um, for and he, he was in his last year of the deal and we looked great at the time and he was filling in. But once John Wall went out and Thomas Sadoransky was playing backup while he was playing starter minutes, it became clear that Thomas deserved the minutes over Tim. So right now your fifty seventh your fifty second pick is in New Orleans, and the guy that you traded him for is out of the rotation. Kelly is the is the true project that they have left, and they still have another year with him. He's um, yeah, he can be very overly aggressive. He can be extra at times. Um, I think he's he just he's just that way. I love watching him play, and I think and I think the big thing with him is um, 
he's hitting his 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 his, uh, his three pointers this year, um, or at least at a better rate than he was last year. So his his improvement, I think, as a, his development as a player is he's really trying to um, be much more of a scorer. Um, although his his bread and butter is with this length and this athleticism on the defensive end. I mean, you look at um, last year he was taking five point six or something along those lines shots per game. Now he's um, He's, he's uh, shooting nine shots per game, but he is playing starters minutes. Um, but the development, I guess, yeah, it definitely it starts with uh, Kelly because he's so young. But also, I mean, Otto is still 24 years old. Uh, he may be the he may be the third max guy, but um, he's not he's not completely done. And especially if he's going to be dealing with this hip issue, which he has dealt with since even before his rookie year. Um, staying healthy, being able to be st- staying healthy and being on the floor and, and doing what he did last year by um, um, not, he doesn't need the basketball, but he helps the Wizards space. Um, he was a great knockdown shooter last year and he would do some of the, um, some of like the dirty work when, when he and Oubre are both on the floor, I think sometimes they decide to, to just crash crash the offensive glass and try to um, get some opportunities that way. And typically, that's not what the Wizards like to do. So um, Otto and Kelly definitely are, are probably the bigger uh, uh, de- development thing. Probably wouldn't throw Otto in that group, but still a young player and still needs to, I guess, become a little bit more selfish uh, on the offensive end. Don't pass up shots. Don't pass up open shots. And, um, you know, take... Um, Take, take, fill in and take what you can get. Yeah, you, you wrote a piece the other day that I thought was really interesting about the team being frustrated with Porter's kind of lack of aggression and looking for his own shot. And I, I think he's such an interesting player because he uh, is kind of a souped up role player. He does a lot of like the little things and doesn't score that much. And that's kind of what the team asked him to be and, and almost needs him to be. But at the same time, uh, is there a natural tension when the highest paid player on the team is only the third leading scorer on the team, especially when things are not going necessarily very well uh, or, or kind of up and down the way the team has been so far this year? Yeah, I have to feel a little bit for, for Otto because when they signed him, they made this big deal and that there'll be games when he scores eight points, there'll be games when he pulls down uh, six rebounds, and then people go after him and say, ah, oh, that's not a max contract um, player. That's not what he should be doing. So they, made, they, they kind of ran interference very quickly, knowing that that's Otto's game. He's not going to be a guy who's going to give you 20 points per game. Plus, it's impossible for him to be a 20-point scorer on this team with uh, with Brad and John, just because the offense flows through them. So I, I, I got to wonder, like, what's going through his head, like if he's overthinking, A, when he's in a rut. Um, he may be overthinking that, okay, I don't want to, you know, keep yanking up shots. But B, okay, these guys want me to shoot, but that's not what, that's not, you're like, A, you give me the ball, and B, that's really not what you got from me last year, and uh, we were successful. So I'm I'm very I'm very curious to see just how he'll react for the rest of the season. Like, okay, well, if you want me to start jacking up shots and 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 finding my own lane, then um, give me the ball, or uh, you're not giving the ball back when it comes my way. Um, Otto just isn't that type of dude to be a number one a, a number one character um, on a team, well, at least not on this team. So 
I'm just I'm just curious what really do they want from him? Um, he's he's shooting. He's actually shooting more shots than he was last year, but um, the percentages aren't there. And over these last ten games, when he hasn't been shooting well, um, and over that last stretch again, remember Brad Bill had his um, his streak his streak of twenty points or more, and he was you know getting about 20, 20 shots per game. You know wh- where are the opportunities coming for him to be able to break out the streak and be as aggressive as they want him to be? Uh, Candace, one thing I, I look at with this team with Gortat, I mean, you watch their lineups at least in small samples. Um, Mike Scott seems to have played really well, maybe even above his head at times this season for them. You, you mentioned Sadaransky. Um, does this team have the potential to go small when they need to come playoff time to kind of play against a team like the Celtics, obviously like the the Cavs can do? Um, are they going to be able to kind of keep up with teams that want to do that and kind of punish the fact that Gortat doesn't want to come all the way out to the three-point line defensively? Yeah, but you know what's so fascinating? Their lineup with um, John Brad, um, Otto, and Kelly, but Gortat, is far and away their best five-man unit. And, of course, that's a little bit small, but you still have a traditional dude who kind of despises uh, playing out where the air is thin um, on the perimeter. Um, (laughs) But that's their best lineup with Marquise on the bench, which, yeah, uh, last year um, their lineup with Marquise as the five, that was probably – that was their best lineup. But this year – they they can do the Mike Scott at the five, Marquise at the five, and look very good. But I would like actually I would like to see them more with um, Kelly on the floor, either as the four, three, uh, him and Otto uh, uh, switching that off, and and Marchin. because what Marchin does uh, it just it just fits with that those those uh, those young those um, I'm so, I'm smaller guys. So they'll have the um, the uh, ability to be versatile. In the playoffs, and I and I think it's it's not a I don't have to I'm not going to write them off. They may not hit 50 wins, um, and if they do, it will be you know right at the finish line. Um, but that doesn't mean if they, what, their regular season success, I, I think, uh, is not going to um, once April and May April and May hits, um, what they have done in the regular season probably won't count for anything because I, I really do think this team. Uh, can compete in the Eastern Conference Finals. I don't know if they'll be. I'm sorry, Eastern Conference playoffs. I don't think. I don't think they're they're ready to upset. You know, a, a LeBron James led team at this point, but they um, they can definitely compete with Boston and Toronto and and Cleveland. So I'm, I'm definitely not writing them off when it comes to the games that matter. It's just you know. Gosh, I just thought they would be a much better and much more consistent team at this point. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to zoom out and talk about that big picture in the East, too, because like you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, you know, they were the four seed last year, but they had some emerging guys and you kind of make the case that they would improve and sort of they were comfortably in that top four that, that would get you at least home court for the first round. But the landscape of the East seems like it's changed even since last season's playoffs. Boston, for instance, I think Washington considered them to be sort of rivals or, or you know, almost equals to uh, after that playoff 
playoff series last year. Boston seems to have gotten much better. Toronto uh, seems to be playing significantly better also. Cleveland might be going through their struggles, but nobody's ready to write them off. Uh, even Milwaukee, Philly, Miami seem to be sort of creeping up uh, into Washington's neighborhood too. So is this a case of, you know, Washington seems like they've done a lot of the things right that you would think about that a team should do on paper. They have a star and wall. They have complimentary players and Beal and Porter better than complimentary players, even some solid supporting pieces. And yet still, it just doesn't seem to be enough, even in the Eastern Conference, which everyone kind of went into the season thinking would be uh, kind of a cakewalk for the top teams. So do you think Washington kind of needs to uh, adjust their expectations, given that it does seem like the, the East itself has changed in composition since even the end of last season? Um, I, I I thought with the the talent drain for sure like the, the East would be uh, weaker, but uh, you you look up and down from the, the number three team to um, Philly right now. It's, there's such a, a short distance between Cleveland and and then Philadelphia and wins and losses, and and that's a team that's uh, at the top that's going to have home court advantage um, come playoffs, and a team that's right now um, outside of the playoff picture. So that's that's wild to me. There definitely is um, much more, I guess, parity than what was imagined. So adjusting their, um, adjusting their, um, you know, outlook and perspective. No, this is a team that should be much better. They left so many games, um, um, so many wins off the schedule, and it's they should be. I just think at this point, um, this this the city and this franchise, this has. A generation of um, just mediocrity, and since 1978, they haven't won 50 games. You have the best talent that you have uh, that you have assembled on a roster since then. There's just no reason for this team not to live up to those expectations. I really, uh, I really don't think um, that the, the other rising teams that have gone to their neighborhood, as you said. I just don't think that's an excuse for the Wizards um, to, to still be mediocre. And I, I, I call him this. Jerry Brewer wrote a, a column recently about, yeah, good should not – for right now, good is not good enough for this team just because of everything that, they, that we've seen them do. Um, these guys are still in their primes. They still have a top 15 player in John Wall. They have a budding all-star and another guy that they just shoveled a crap load of money too, but that's what the market dictated. So you have all this talent and they really do need to start backing it up. No matter how good the East, um, the East is, um, in spite of what we thought they, uh, in spite of what the, we thought the East would be. That's a really remarkable stat. The, the one that you just mentioned about them not having uh, cracked 50 wins in a season since 1979. Uh, that, that's really amazing to think about, uh, all the teams that they've had since then. And they haven't had, you know, uh, amazing teams. Hibachi but they, years. Were, right. Those yeah. are pretty good teams. You know, they had some pretty good teams in yeah. there and still were not able to crack the big five zero. And even Michael Jordan, I know he came here at the end of his <laughs> career, but still, um, the, the the forgotten Michael Jordan Kwame Brown era. <laughs> How come they didn't win sixty? No, I'm joking. Um, but yeah, this 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 market has just really waited for a long time, and it's gotten to the point where um, you know it's that they just can't, they just come to expect that okay, uh, it, expectations are going to be crap, and we are going to expect that um, we're going to lose. However, 
it just it shouldn't be an excuse um, anymore. This is this team is way too talented, and I'm sure they will figure it out. Figure it out, but um, you know, looking in the bigger picture, you need they they will need um, home court advantage um, for at least one round. So if they can secure a four seed, that's great, and try to um, try to work some magic from there. But fifth seed and, and match up with Miami or 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 fall and maybe get like uh my uh Cleveland in the first round that's not going to do it. It is amazing that they've they've had this like long stretch of mediocrity going back to you know the curse of Labelay with Kornheiser but uh, they've never wavered in their belief that they can beat LeBron and the Cavs in the playoffs. Aren't they a chesty group? Yes, they uh they, they say they match up very well against Cleveland and of course Cle- Cleveland has changed um they haven't played um the Cavaliers with um an active Isaiah Thomas yet. Um and Isaiah Thomas has some Big games against him early in that uh, in that uh, second round series, but he was still dealing with that um, with his injury. Then got to tell it off. But I, you know, uh, you know, Cleveland, Cleveland has come in here twice in Washington, in Washington, and beat them twice. So it's just it's it's a matter of uh, I really do think it will be a matter of like if they can get past that first round, then as John Wall likes to say, we'll just give ourselves a chance. But um, they don't they don't want to face. Cleveland, or I'm, yeah, I want to say Miami may be a bit of a bit of a struggle, just because of um, the way they're currently constructed. But um, their first round opponent will be uh, pretty important for sure. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Candice. That was fantastic, and uh, we'll we'll leave the Wizards there for now. But I'm sure we'll have much to discuss with them uh, later. And it was really great having you on the show today. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Okay, so now we're going to wrap things up from there and close out the episode with a segment we like to call Small Sample. And let's hear a word from our sponsor. If you're like a lot of guys, you could probably think of a million things you'd rather be doing than shopping for clothes. Between parking and crowds at the mall and the endless browsing and lack of advice online, it's enough to make you want to rock the same t-shirt and jeans forever. But you can't. So let me tell you about Stitch Fix Men. They've reimagined how to find and buy clothes. And you never even have to leave the house. It's that easy. Just go to stitchfix.com and tell them your sizes, your favorite types of clothes, and how much you want to spend. Then your personal stylist gets to work hand-picking new clothes for you based on your style and budget. Five items are delivered right to your door. You try them on at home and you only pay for what you keep. Shipping's free both ways, so anything you don't want, just send it back. And exchanges are always free too. You can get your fix monthly, quarterly, or whenever you feel like it. There's no subscription required. It's easy. The shipping is free. Why not give Stitch Fix a try? Get started now at stitchfix.com slash the lab. That's one word, T-H-E-L-A-B. And you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash the lab to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash the lab. All right, this is the time of the show where we discuss an emerging trend in the league that doesn't have a whole lot of data behind it, but might end up being meaningful after all. And this week's small sample regards Clippers guard Lou Williams, who torched the Warriors for his first career 50-point game last Wednesday, uh, which was one of eight 30-point games he's posted since December 22nd. He's averaging 32 points per game for the month of January, 23 on the season as a whole, and if he keeps it up, he will become, at age 31, the oldest player in modern NBA history at the time of his first 20-plus points per game season. So what's gotten into Lou Williams so far this season? Is it just the injuries on the Clippers, the opportunity with, with some of their stars leaving that has opened up a chance for him, or something more than that? 
I I have no idea. I mean, but it's it's been fun to watch that Warriors game. I don't know how many people saw it. I'm sure a decent amount was on national TV, but he was at 47. Right. He was at 47 for like the last minute or two of the just game, and just <laughs> shooting these 35 foot threes, almost because he realized that it would have been unfair to get the 50 by scoring. You know, like really trying to score once you're already up by that many points. So he's like, "Well, if I chuck this shot from half court and, it and I make it, you can't get in. mad at me." And so he no, took two or three worse. of them. That's worse. He took two or three of them, and then the last one went down with like probably a second left, which was just so great. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, to answer your initial question, I don't know what it is. I mean, obviously he's had more opportunity. The Clippers have probably been the most injured team in the league so far this year, between. Blake Griffin multiple times and Patrick Beverly and Danilo Gallinari and Milos Teodosic. Everybody's been out and obviously someone has to kind of take the extra scoring opportunities. Lou Williams is probably the person that has the least problem with doing that, but he still deserves a lot of credit for being more efficient really than he's ever been. And that that's after a season in which I, I wrote a story about how Houston kind of dominated the market in terms of these guys that get fouled on three-point shots, and Lou Williams was not anywhere near James Harden, but he was second in the league by a big margin. And so them kind of not taking that rule away but enforcing it differently and not giving up those three-point shot fouls as quickly, um, the fact that he's still scoring this efficiently is incredible. And he's always been, uh, he's first of all been kind of an interesting player because he's only averaged 23.6 minutes per game in his career leading up to this kind of late blooming breakout season that he's having this year he's averaging 32 minutes a night now uh, but he also was really good in the amount of time that he had at least offensively he averaged 20 points per 36 minutes for his career had an 18 player efficiency rating and 25 percent more win shares per minute than the average player so he was like one of these per minute stars that just for whatever reason didn't really get that much playing time he was always kind of coming off the bench or, or never in a situation where teams really trusted him being in the starting lineup uh consistently but when he did play there were signs of this i guess just never to this extent I mean, it's also a thing where he was basically this good last year, um, just in shorter minutes. Um, like per 100 possessions, he's scoring 36 points per 100 possessions. Last season, he was at 34.6 and the Lakers in Houston. Um, and like, so we were playing around with a Mori index last season. I don't think we ever actually did a piece on it. But if you do like a kind of weighted average of three point attempt rate and free throw rate, uh, which is just, you know, getting to the line and, you know, shooting threes. Which is pretty hard to, to maintain both of those uh, at the same time if right. you're not James Harden or someone like that. Exactly. Uh, in like James, even James Harden like is getting less of them this season because they want to de-emphasize that. Um, but Lou Williams is right there with James Harden. Lou Williams, um, is one of the few players in the league, like over the last decade that we ran the thing on, he was like in the top 20 a bunch of his seasons. And, like, that's the thing that, like, you wouldn't really expect from just, like, Lou Williams, but he found his way to Daryl Morey and the Rockets last season, and, like, that was a big reason why. Uh, I, I talked to Daryl about that, and I kind of asked him after I ran the numbers on the, the three-point shooting fouls, was it specifically about this idea that he draws fouls the way he does, that you wanted him and Harden on the same team, that you went out and traded for him? And he he never, he didn't really quite answer the question directly. He's like, let's just put it this way. We're, we were we were well aware of how good at drawing fouls, both going to the basket and jump shooting, that Lou Williams was. And so it, it very much seemed as if he kind of knew what he was getting from him. Obviously, they scouted him 
uh, to death before they, they went and picked him up. But he, he was great for them last year. But, I mean, the, the other thing that has to be mentioned here in terms of just how crazy he's been and the minutes, why he doesn't get more minutes. I mean, he's horrible on defense. Yeah, I wanted to note that, that according to Real Plus Minus, he's literally the second worst defensive player in the league <laughs> so this season, this during his breakout season. So that's why he's always been coming off the bench. But, I mean, it, it is nuts. There are very few guys I can think of that have had this sort of impact where uh, I think the the – Nick team that I covered in 12-13 where J.R. Smith won sixth man of the year. He was the first player in league history to lead his team in minutes, J.R. Smith, to lead his team in minutes despite not starting any games. And so it, between that, Mike Woodson coached that team. Mike Woodson is a an assistant on this team, and he coached Jamal Crawford for all those years in Atlanta. And so, I mean, I, I do think there is kind of a, a string that you can almost tie these guys together in terms of the way they're being used and what all is being asked of them from an offensive standpoint. But he's been he's been fantastic. He probably deserves to be an all-star so far. Well, Crawford's the guy I was going to bring up because he was 29 in that first season that he was um, coming off the bench in Atlanta. And before that, he'd been a starter. He'd been a 20-point scorer. But per 100 possessions, that first year in Atlanta was his highest scoring per 100 possession season of his career. And the next three on the list are when he went to the Clippers and he was 33, <laughs> 34, or 32, 33, and 34 years old. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of its role, too, where you're just moving into that microwave role, like off the bench. But it's a totally different thing. And that, that's why I think he deserves so much credit, like to do that against bench players. Versus doing it against starters. Mm-hmm. And when you're playing the sorts of minutes he's been asked to play, um, especially of late, especially with Blake and everybody else out, uh, you're not supposed to dominate guys the way that he's been doing um, on a per shot, on a per minute basis. So it's it's been really, really impressive. And like so, I'd I'd been looking at the the rocket stuff before this, so we can talk about it. Whatever, it's just now occurring to me that like, what if him and Harden or he and Harden shared notes last season? Now he's just like a monster, like <laughs> like just the worst of both. Like they're just like yeah, like yeah. I, I, I don't know. All of a sudden, I don't like this as much. <laughs> and yeah, and even with Harden, you mentioned not uh, not being able to pull off maybe some of the same foul drawing tricks as in the past. It still does make sense that in this era, you're you're seeing players that sort of always had the potential within them to play maybe more of a Mori Ball type of role actually have breakouts once they hit their 30s because that skill is more valued now than it had been in the past. And Lou Williams, just another note on that 50-point game, uh, he was the 11th oldest player in history to record his first career 50-point game. The oldest, can you guys name who the oldest uh, was? He was 33 at the time, almost 34 at the time of his first 50-point game. This happened in the last decade. Impromptu quiz time here on the podcast. Can you repeat the question? Who uh, so who's the oldest player in NBA history at the time of his first career 50-point game? Ooh. I have no idea. <laughs> older there are 10 people older in the last than Lou decade, 10 point, Yeah, this one this Lord. one number one uh, was de- uh, a couple months shy of his 34th birthday when he got his first career uh 50-point game. And and to spare the uh Anton? No, he he's got to be on there somewhere, but the player uh that I'm thinking of is Andre Miller, who in 2010 That's at right. age that was 33 so dumb. <laughs> and 317 days notched his first That's ridiculous. Uh, I remember that game. game. That was with, so dumb. With Portland uh, against the Dallas Mavericks. So that's, that's hilarious. Yeah, you also had Clifford Robinson just rounding out the rest of the top ten on that. Sam Jones in 1965, uh, Mo Williams 
Mo Williams had a 50-point game. I forgot about I that. I do remember Minnesota. That. Yeah. Uh, Chet Walker, great underappreciated Chicago Bulls player. Gail Goodrich of the Lakers. Alex English. Uh, Allen Houston in 2003 had his first career 50-point game. And Ray Allen. It took Ray Allen. This is something I can't believe. Until the 2007 season, so the year before he went to uh, Boston, to get his first career 50-point game. I would have thought he would have gotten it much earlier. And then Damon Stoudemire, another fond name from the past, also did it as kind of an older guard on the Portland Trailblazers. They were all older than Lou Williams? They were all older than Lou Williams is right now, uh, amazingly. I thought he would rank higher on that. But he is the oldest player ever to get his first 20 points per game season. I mean, he's well over that now uh, at 23 points a night. So it would take him significantly falling off in the second half not to uh, set that record. I mean, Lou's also just been in the league forever. Like, he's not that old. He's just, I mean, he's 31. He just seems old because he came out of high school. One of the last crop of guys to come out of high school, right? All right, that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, guys. Uh, it was great to have you here uh, and, and in studio in person. And uh, I just want to also shout out all of the listeners who continue to send us their questions. Keep them coming. Podcast at 538.com. Let us know what you think of the program. And once again, thanks to Candace Buckner uh, for appearing on the show. She's great. You can read her work at The Washington Post, and she writes about the Wizards there and covers their beat. Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Wherever you listen to the show, be sure to review and rate it. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.